Coming up, I have a shocking stat for you, incredibly pertinent to every one of us in Canada. But if you haven't, and I think most people didn't get a hold of this, it changes. I think it'll change your perspective on a major event. Also, Ozzy Jurek going to join me. I've also got Victor Dare on deck live from the trading desk. There's so much coming your way. I've got uh, one of those goofy awards this week, by the way, that I looked at it, and I, I really was, you got to be kidding me. No, you couldn't have made this one up. Uh, it's fascinating. Stay with us for that one. Very pleased, though, right now to welcome back to the show. He's the author of The X Factor Report, a partner at STA Wealth Management, host of Street uh, Street Talk Live. Lance Roberts joins me on the line. Lance, I appreciate very much you taking the time on the weekend. Uh, absolutely. Always happy to do it for you. And, and you know, what a great week to be talking. Uh, like, like us all, you look at what happened uh, from the Chinese central authorities this week, devaluing their currency on, I think it was Tuesday. Things are moving so fast that you've got to get the time change right. They said, don't worry, it's a one-off event. And then they did it the next day. And then they did it further the next day. And the, the markets uh, certainly paid attention. Yeah, you know, they certainly did. Well, they paid attention on Tuesday, obviously. You know, we were oversold uh, the last week. Uh, on Friday, we'd had five straight days of selling. And, in fact, I'd written in my newsletter for the previous weekend to expect a bounce this current week simply because we were so oversold that we were going to get a reflex rally. Well, on Monday, we start out nice up day, 26 points on the S&P. Then on Tuesday... Uh, the market completely reverses that as China steps in to value the, the, their currency for the first time. But then, interestingly enough, on Wednesday, they did it again. The market recovered entirely that day, did it again on Thursday, and we wind up positive. So, And we finished up the week positive. So, you know, very quickly what's happening here is that regardless of what's happening in China, and look, let's step back from, from just the movement of currency for a moment. China is the second largest economy on the planet, right behind the U.S. They have a major impact on not only the economic demand in China, but also that our own economic growth here in the United States as well. So what happens in China is very important to us in terms of exports and imports. And this move by China is simply telling you that the economic stats that are produced by China are far weaker than what China readily admits that they are. So there is a real issue here of potential deflationary pressures washing back from this on the United States. But right now, because of you know worries about missing this bull market and uh, the, the central bank's interventions, of course, we, we had lofted comments of QE4 this past week by a Fed official. You know, nobody wants to be out of the market. And so we are very quickly ignoring potentially big major events. Well, back to the China, of course, in Canada, we're very interested because we have, uh, you know, a commodity-based economy, certainly in the West, at least has a huge impact, not just the oil prices, which, of course, is, uh, you know, hit a six-year low this week. But it's also, you know, I saw the impact on copper, on nickel, on potash, you know, Australia suffering the same thing. So I think, you know, the big message is don't look for that Chinese demand to rescue the commodity markets. And I guess they must be panicking, I'll tell you, in other kind of emerging market export nations because, of course, they're putting their goods on sale, which I think is a a, a warning sign there. So if I'm sitting in Malaysia or Indonesia or Thailand, I'm kind of worried about this. And so I, I think, as you say, our markets kind of ignored it after the first day and a half, but that doesn't mean the impact isn't there. Exactly, and I think they are ignoring it to their peril. 
Um, you know, if you take a look at emerging markets, uh, you know, like an ETF example, it's a basket of emerging markets. They're down 10% this year. So, yeah. you, know, we're, you know, we're seeing the impact that, and I've, and I've talked about this before, you know, a lot of people chase emerging markets because that's where you can get the most bang for your buck. But if the, the major economies of the world, uh, the Eurozone, the United States, Japan, and China, you know, if, if they catch a cold, everybody else gets the flu. And, you know, you're seeing the potentials of that. The Atlanta GDP, the Atlanta Federal Reserve, which produces the GDP now for the United States, is probably one of the more accurate indicators of what's happening with economic growth because they produce it on a real-time basis. It's currently expecting 0.7% economic growth for the third quarter in the United States. And, you know, that's obviously coming from the impact of that we're going to see slower exports, imports, you know, the, the issues with the, the stronger dollar and then now with the devaluations, what's happening in the Eurozone. The Eurozone GDP just came out this week much weaker than expected. Um, something I talked about before that they were just seeing simply an inventory restocking cycle that would end. We're now seeing that happen. And so all these waves of deflationary pressures are washing back onto the U.S. economy. And then, of course, the U.S. is trapped between, unfortunately, Canada and Mexico, which are also getting impacted by the strong dollar here. So it's, it's a global screw that's being tightened currently on, a, on the economy here, and it will catch up to the financial markets. It's just a function of time. Well, one of the things I, I, I've been saying, right, and it happened it happened to look correct, actually. Uh, January of 09, I was a buyer in the markets at, the, at those kind of lows, but it was because I appreciated there was no other game in town. You're going to get a, a decline in interest rates that uh, persist to this day. And, and that's what I kind of think the stock market continues to benefit from in the States is, one, a strong U.S. dollar, so it looks for more safety there, but the other is, where else are you putting your money? I mean, you watched the money pour in again with that uncertainty into the treasury market. So you got a reversal of the sort of slightly higher rates you were getting. Presto, down again, you know, because money's pouring in looking for safety. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me, are you saying that all of the bond market gurus out there that are saying the end of the bond bull market are wrong? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I've been saying that for a while, but I think it's really on that, that basis is that it, it, you know, the gold bucks don't like it. But I said the market has screamed that when uncertainty hits, it is not choosing gold. It is choosing the U.S. Treasury market when problems right. hit. Well, you know? exactly. That's exactly right. You know, back in June of 2013, I you know, this was when Bill Gross came out. That, that was the first utterance of the end of the bond bull is over. Bill Gross says it, so it's got to be true. I wrote an article then. I said, this is the best time ever to be buying bonds. And, you know, that's been a great the, – the bonds have been a great trade ever since then and continue to be, you know, a, a position where we're trapped in a long-term trading range. What people haven't come to realize yet is that we're in a liquidity trap. And this is something I've been writing about for about two years now. If you don't believe that interest rates can remain low for an exceptionally long period of time, just take a look at Japan. You know, yeah. when you have an environment where you have debt levels in excess of 100% of GDP, you've got an inability to create strong organic economic growth, and organic being the key word, not artificially induced through, through financial liquidity injections, but organic consumption-based demand growth. And if you are suppressing interest rates and have to maintain low uh, accommodative monetary policies to fuel the engine, you cannot have higher interest rates 
and therefore we're going to be stuck in a very long-term period of this. That's what's called a liquidity trap. You can't create inflation. I'm talking with Lance Arm. Lance. I was about to call you Lance Armstrong, Lance. There you go. Yeah, talk about oh, uh, on, cycling on, on my brain. So many jokes about that. In the oh, jeez, I'm I'm already a living cliche. I am talking to Lance Robert. He's the author of the X Factor Report, STA Wealth Management, uh, does Street Talk Live. Lance, just a moment ago, you were talking about the U.S. and the big debate in the U.S. seems to be. Uh, interest rates. Are we going to get the Federal Reserve bumping interest rates up before the end of the year? We've got a, a lot of people thinking it starts in September, others thinking a little later, others thinking we'll get two bumps this year. Where do you stand on that one? Well, here, here's the interesting thing. Um, if you take a look at the at the real economic data, you take a look at what's happening really with employment, real with real wage growth, with inflation, everything tells you the Fed should not raise rates this year okay however i've been i've been writing this now for the the past you know several months is that i think the fed will raise rates in september not because they want to and not because they should but because they are trapped between the lesser of two evils and this is what i mean by this if you don't raise interest rates we are six years into an over six years into an economic expansion and economic cycles do not last forever the worst possible scenario for the federal reserve is to be caught in a recession at zero interest rates they have absolutely no monetary policy available to them at that point that actually works qe is fine but it doesn't actually work into boosting economic growth but lowering interest rates can spur some economic activity the other problem is though that if they raise rates they potentially trigger a recession if you go back through history and look at every time the Fed raised interest rates when economic growth was below 2% on an, on, a, on an annualized basis, it took three to six months before the recession set in. So they start raising interest rates in September. You have a recession in 2016. At least they've got some ability to lower interest rates to offset that recessionary drag. So my point here is, is I think Yellen realizes that we are potentially closer to the next recession than not. And even though the economic data is far too weak to raise interest rates, they'll do it anyway. And, and just as a quick understanding of this, is that let's remember why the Fed raises interest rates to begin with. They raise interest rates to slow economic growth to keep an economy from overheating and creating a spike in inflationary pressures. So do we have economic growth? Well, the, the, the Fed just says we're going to be running less than 2% this year. The Atlanta Fed is saying 07 in the third quarter. find it hard to believe we've got enough economic growth to worry about spiking rates of inflation, which we don't have anyway. So it, it tells you everything you need to know right there is that the Fed wants to raise rates simply because they know what's coming. Yeah, I, I, I really agree with that scenario, and I think that they are really caught between a rock and a hard place, especially when you get politicians who continually initiate anti-growth policies, and that's precisely what I see happening uh, in many of the states, but on the federal level in the U.S., where the tax take continues to grow, and it's, you know, the feder uh, the central bankers have been sort of put in this position, kind of saying, we're on our own here. And as you just said, their tools are pretty blunt. Uh, you know, they did the quantitative easing to prevent, I think, uh, another credit crisis sort of meltdown. But, you know, clearly the record low interest rates 
uh, they can't control what that money does. They can't make me, with record low interest rates, go out and buy a car. They can't make me go do certain things. So clearly the people with access to that money have taken it, but they've done other things that uh, don't necessarily impact uh, you know, economic growth. So it's such a fascinating period we're in right now. Well, it is. And look, you know, the, the problem was, and this, and this all goes back to 2009, the Fed made a huge mistake in 2009 and 2010. You know, coming in with the artificial bailouts, um, you know, through, uh, you know, the, the bailouts from the federal government, and then we did cash for clunkers and cash for utility, you know, the appliances and all kinds of stuff to try to stimulate economic activity. And the Fed comes in, lowers interest rates to zero, and floods the system with liquidity. What the Fed should have done at that point, instead of focusing on just trying to stop the economic slowdown, they should have actually allowed the slowdown to occur and allow the deleveraging cycle for the consumer to actually go through its completion process. In other words, instead of, uh, instead of making, you know, trying to bail people out of defaulted mortgages, help them default, help them go in, because now we're ignoring bankruptcies. Oh, you had a bankruptcy the last couple of years, who cares? We know what the problem was. You're a good guy. Let's give you another house. Instead of allowing that bankruptcy process to occur, and instead of allowing banks to be broken up and using that liquidity to offset the negative impacts of those events, we stopped the, the actual deleveraging process from occurring. So we have never resolved the issues that got us into trouble to start with, and we've wasted trillions of dollars worth of investment to... Um, to, to stabilize something that should have been allowed to work through the process. Would we have had the economic growth um, in 2010, 2011 that we did? No. But we would be in a much healthier case now and would likely be seeing a resumption of organic, real economic growth had we allowed that cycle to occur. Yeah, we've summed it up on this show by saying it's pretty weird to try and solve a debt problem by adding more debt. That's been the central strategy. Lance Roberts is my guest. You can find him at www.streettalklive.com. There you can subscribe. It's absolutely free. You can go to the X Factor Report, streettalklive.com. You saw him at the World Outlook Conference, author of X Factor Report. I'll come back. We'll talk about you Uh, Don't you love it? We're going to chat about you when we come back. Lance is going to share some thoughts about what individual investors have to do in the kind of environment he's just laid out for us right here across the Chorus Radio Network. Coming up, I've got a shocking stat for you. I've got a great Goofy Award this week. But let's talk about you. Well, let's talk about you with Street Talk Live's Lance Roberts. Also, of course, he's the author of The X Factor Report. You can go and find him at streettalklive.com streettalklive.com. Lance, before the break, we were sort of setting the table, the kind of environment we're finding ourselves in as investors. Uh, let's, I mean, obviously this is broad talk. People have individual circumstances, whether it's you know financial circumstances, emotional circumstances. So we're encouraging, we're putting topics on the table so they can go talk to their financial advisor about it. But things that they, what, what one thing comes to mind if I say, no matter who you are, what your circumstances, you should not ignore this well the one thing you don't ignore is that regardless of what the mainstream media tells you markets do not rise forever um everything goes in cycles we have up cycles and we have down cycles and market advances of the magnitude that we have seen since 2009 are not uncommon we have seen those in the past however 
it is important to understand that such cycles don't last forever and remaining aggressively invested, trying to chase every little bit of return that the market will give you has historically wound up being very, very, very bad, having very bad outcome. And this will, unfortunately, will wind up just the same as we've seen before. And if we take a look at where the market advance is currently relative to uh, you know, historical norms, we are far past points that have normally seen peaks at previous major bull market tops. So that's, you know, regardless of who you are, what your age is, or, and how you're currently invested, don't ignore the facts that markets do go down. And when they go down, they tend to go down much further than most people expect. Well, also, we're looking at the broad averages, obviously, when we chat, but you look at individual groups. Uh, one of the things, and I, I don't you, you know, I like to point it out when I've been right, but it was I love the 3D printing sector, but don't like 3D printing stocks. I made that very clear uh, going back, I think it was November of 2013. And my, my God, we've watched that sector drop around 70%. Obviously, uh, look at the energy sector, another massive drop, the gold stock sector. So certain sectors have been punished within the broad uptrend that we've been experiencing. Right. Well, and again, this is and this is another very important thing that there, there's, you know, you said, what's the one thing? There's so many things you should be paying attention to right now. Momentum is deteriorating the market. Um, the breadth of the market is deteriorating. And very importantly, yes, and here's the, the interesting is the markets are very near their all-time highs. I mean, if you look at the markets, you'd say, well, wow, you know, nothing's really happened here as of late. Markets are just stagnant for this year. Internally, though, just like you said, there are sectors that are down well more than 20%. There are sectors that are down 20, 25, 30%. And this big internal deterioration is occurring, and that means that we've got fewer and fewer stocks that are holding up the markets, companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, these big major multi-cap technology companies are health and, and uh, healthcare companies are supporting the averages, but it's very, it's becoming very, very few in nature that are holding up. And this is something that you also normally see, this narrowing of breadth. You normally see that at the peak of bull market extensions. And again, just some, it doesn't mean that we're going to collapse, you know, next week into a major market correction. But just understand that there's time, there is the function of money, how, how, how much money can go after a relatively few yeah. number of stocks. And importantly, understand that a big part of what's been elevating the market has been stock buybacks. Stock buybacks have been funded by debt, and a lot of that's been high-yield debt, and the banks are cutting down on that. So, so if that okay, goes got, away, that's yeah. another support. I got to hold you at that, Lance, and no thank worries, you sorry. so much for taking the time with us. StreetTalkLive.com. Sign up for the X Factor report. I'll take a break. Come back. Shocking stat. We've posted on the website something called the Complete Black Market Guide. You can find it at MoneyTalks.net. While you're there, I really encourage people, we do a daily business comment, or I do a daily business comment Monday through Friday. You can click on right there. You can download from iTunes also on that plus you can listen to show you can listen to what uh, lance roberts had to say earlier or michael levy you can listen to the show again uh, any part of the show that you want plus every week uh, midweek i get interviewed on what i consider the top subject of the day for investors obviously this past week as you might suspect it was on the chinese devaluation and the ramifications talking about one aspect of that that i felt might be the most important uh, to the financial system in the next couple of years 
But as I say, we posted the black market guide on the website. I'll just give you a sample. It's just fascinating here. 11 million passports were lost or stolen in the year 2010. So what does it cost for a stolen passport? Well, the average worldwide is $3,500. Black market passport and a visa to Australia, that's the most expensive I found, was $15,000. But you could just kind of dumb it down and just get a fake driver's license. Well, in California, that'll cost you about $200. Here's, they got a double price going on for a passport, by the way, in Thailand. The basic passport, which you can get within two hours, is $245. But if you want a higher quality one, the prices range from $1,000 to $1,250. Go to the Black Market Guide. You can find out what cocaine sells for throughout the, the world. Fascinating to see what a kidney sale, uh, sells for. A kidney buyer in Singapore pays three hundred grand. In the U.S., about one hundred and twenty grand. But you can get much le- uh, less. You can uh, get 2700 in Romania. I mean, the list that they have on this thing, the complete black market guide, is absolutely fascinating. You know, you can find out what it costs to get a hitman or an exotic animal for sale. Prices of computers and online fraud. And I'll talk about bribery coming up a little bit later. Anyways, that's all in our black market guide that you can find on moneytalks.net. Time now for the shocking stat, though. Lots of talk about oil prices here. I mean, government finance ministries talk about it, Wall Street, Bay Street, Middle East. But despite all that, all the stuff we do on it, I saw a number number on Tuesday that really got me taking a double take. The number was $19.80 U.S. What was that? That was the closing price for a barrel of Western Canada Select Crude. That's the crude that gets produced out of northern Alberta. $19.80. Not the 41 or $42 that you hear about. That, that was, I think, what, $21 U.S. under the price that day. This is the key price for Canada and its producers. That was lower, by the way, than it was during the credit crisis in 08. The low there was $24.62. By the way, this is what all the pipeline talk is about. Without getting that crude to market easily, then the prices uh, are still low. It costs Canadian and Canadian governments a ton. Here's the other point, though, that notes, and it's for the broader prices of crude also, that, come on, summer is the big peak season for demand. we got the summer driving season going on. In other words, we get into the fall, everything else stays as it is. You've got a downward pressure on prices because demand goes down. Now, I'll just remind you of one other thing. Keep in mind that all surprises in a market that is going down are to the downside. And you just wait. Alberta budget numbers are going to get worse than projected. Economic growth will be worse. Because I'll tell you, I don't see much indication. I meant this off the top of the show that our politicians really know what's going on. This should be front and center. If we're getting told that finance and economics are top of mind for Canadians, how this isn't the thing that they're talking about on the federal election campaign, not that they can control oil prices, but what are the implications for the Canadian economy, especially government revenues and equalization payments. But I'll tell you, I was blown away. Under $20 per barrel. It's U.S. dollars per barrel for Western Canada Select. That is half, more than half off what these already all-time, well, not all-time, six-year low for oil prices are. That's what I find shocking about it. Take a break. I'll come back. Ozzy Jerk's going to join me. After that, I've got Victor Dare live from the trading desk. And I love my Goofy Award this week. Stay with us.
it's incredible. You know, you think you're going to get the summer off and people sort of get in a down mode during the summer. Well, the financial markets and financial events certainly aren't. This week, of course, the devaluation, three consecutive days by the Chinese currency and massive ramifications working through the uh, economy. That's what we're talking about on Money Talks. And Money Talks is brought to you Let's be clear, by Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based investment, meaning you get paid first. There's no fees uh, to the investment, and it's in the tech field. So why don't you check out more information by going to soleraclub.com. Another big piece of news this week is all the doom and gloom regarding the Canadian housing market, which is why I'm bringing on Ozzy Jurek. Ozzy, let's just start with this. I mean, I'm just looking over my notes here, and I'm just thinking, boy, I'm thinking it was at Deutsche Bank. Uh, you got Stephen Polos from our Bank of Canada talking about being 30% over, uh, you know, overvalued. Having reports about Canada's high housing market are nothing new, but I see that the CMHC jumped into the fray this week. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that CMHC in its quarterly house price analysis uh, did an assessment of 15 markets in Canada, and guess what? It says Toronto... Winnipeg and Regina are now all considered high-risk markets uh, for as far as they're concerned. Are, are the reasoning the same? As I say, I just alluded to a couple off top, but there are so many more. But is the reason the same? Are they all pointing to the same stuff that is just like an affordability issue, etc.? No, actually it isn't. They're not saying the same thing. Like the Deutsche Bank and our central bank, uh, Polos, uh, were talking affordability. And they both didn't like Vancouver and Toronto equally, you know, based <laughs> on, on, the, on, the, on the affordability. In my news that I've argued, though, for years, that if you want to buy in Vancouver and Hong Kong and New York, these cities have never been affordable. And to argue that that is going to be a reason for a collapse is nonsense. There may be some other reasons, but we think that's nonsense. Well, especially given uh, the record low interest rates, and I think, you know, the impact, and you've, you've alluded to this with me several times, but the impact, for example, of foreign buying uh, is raising average, average prices by the nature of how you compute that, but that is only happening at the upper end of the market. We had McDonald Realty this week come out and say that uh, th- it's just their stats from 2014, but showed that 70% of the market above $3 million was coming out of Chinese buying, but of the market below a million, that was only 11%. So different dynamics for different sectors of the market, too. Yeah, no question. But also, the report that CMHC does is different. They actually like Vancouver, but they think Toronto is high risk. They also think okay. Regina and Winnipeg are overvalued and overbuilt. So there's a, there's a really, they see, uh, you know, thousands of jobs being lost. They see a lot of vacant offices uh, throughout, throughout the economy in those particular markets. But for some reason, I think Vancouver, because I guess a lot of the foreign capital coming in is still going to be okay. It's fascinating, by the way, if that doom and gloom sells. And, uh, you know, lots of people have made careers about predicting some sort of doom or another, uh, you know, and uh, rarely is it right, actually, because it's usually sort of, uh, you know, pretty superficial analysis. But I see uh, Harry Dent is back. Uh, You know, I got a couple of people ask me about this this week. Harry Dent is a guy who, uh, you know, going back, he's had several predictions of calamity there, but now we sort of turned his attention to Vancouver real estate. Yeah, he says we are the single most bubbliest city on the planet. And uh, he calls us the number one, the worst one. And he says New York, Miami, San Francisco, Singapore, and some of the others. Uh, he sees sort of a worldwide collapse. But boy, we are right on the top of his list. Uh, now, he's been saying this for a while. And... Oh, I think I've just lost Ozzy possibly there. No? 
Oh, no, you're there. Oh, so we lost you there. So he's been saying it for a while, uh, yeah. you know, and I look within that. But again, you know, you've got to be more, spe- he's got to be more specific. Are you talking the upper end? Because if you're talking the upper end, for example, he, he listed Vancouver. Well, then you're really talking about, uh, you know, is there going to be a reduction in uh, interest from foreign international buyers? If you're talking the low end, I think you're talking an interest rate story for entry level people. Yeah, if interest rates go up three or four percent, that's going to be negative for the market. But in the meantime, you got massive in migration into Vancouver. You've got the record low interest rates. And as Lance Roberts was just saying, Michael Levy earlier, there's no upward pressure on interest rates at this point. You know, we could have this sort of low interest rate scenario, give or take a couple of, you know, a half a percent, quarter percent for a long, long time. Yeah, you're, you're certainly right, Mike. It's, it's, uh, it's, surely no markets go up forever. It's funny, I'm in Cortez Island, a beautiful island, and last night, uh, my, my friends and I were just discussing, of course, world politics and, and over a bottle of wine, and we actually solved the world's problems by midnight. Uh, they're yeah. all very crystal clear to us. It's just the next morning we don't remember the solution. <laughs> actually, I'm sitting here on the Hey, that's how they, right that's now. how all decisions making, being made yeah. at the upper levels these days. Yeah. <laughs> But it's clear that if our foreign money stops, I mean, Vancouver is not immune. In, 19, no. in the 80s, we lost some money. In the 90s, when Hong Kong money went back, we lost 17% in, in two years. So, but we're not going to lose it for reasons of affordability or Harry's reason for, for demographics. He thinks that all people under 19 are useless. The only people mattered in, for the economy are 19 to 42 years old, and then we're useless again after 42. That doesn't work for Vancouver. As you pointed out, we got huge, massive foreign investment in. Uh, all that is distorting the market uh, somewhat, and you can't just toss over the same brush. Uh, speaking of Vancouver, what about hot properties this week? Well, we got a five-suite uh, in two, five suites in two houses and a double lot uh, in Mount Pleasant, uh, and the income currently is some eighty-nine thousand a year, which makes the cap rate about four percent. It's on at a million six eighty-eight. Uh, that looks like a pretty good deal, but it's a double lot. And then uh, the smaller deal in Chilliwack, two-bedroom townhouse, one hundred seventy-nine thousand. It rents at twelve hundred a month and leaves a positive cash flow of two hundred and eighty-five a month. Great stuff. And as always, you can just go to juruk.com. After the show, Ozzy puts up on the hot property button there, puts up uh, what he's looking at, just stuff for you to examine that kind of look interesting. In the meantime, Ozzy, thank you so much for finding time. I know you had to go out of your way to join us this weekend, but we do appreciate it. Only too happy to. Have a great weekend. Go to juruk.com, J-U-R-O-C-K.com. I'll take a break. I'll come back. I got a great Goofy Award, one you're going to want to hear. Plus, I've got Victor Adair. Really interesting. Last week, Victor said he was 100% cash for the first time in years. I don't think he's still that way. I'll find out what he's been doing in the markets when we come back across the Chorus Radio Network. Happening this week, Victor Dare joins me live from the trading desk. Hey, Vic, last week you told us you were about 100% cash for the first time in memory. It's been a couple of years. I, I just got to know, did you do anything this week? Uh, I finally did, yes, Mike. Um, I mean, I, I've had a, a good run this year where I was short of Canadian dollars, short of crude, uh, short of gold, and basically long of the U.S. dollar. Took profits on those positions, you know, as, as things worked out too early, but uh, that, that happens. And uh, I was sitting in cash, as my good friend Dennis Gartman likes to say, I was flat. That is, I didn't have any positions on, but I was nervous. I mean, sometimes it honestly, it seems to hurt more to not make money than it does to lose money. Anyway, uh, I started this week uh, in, 
out of the market entirely, 100% in cash. And in a way, thank God for that, because the, the dramatic turmoil that we had the first couple of days of the week here was enough to make your head spin with, you know, the, everybody imagining what could possibly happen if the Chinese were ramping it up to make a much more serious war, a currency war than we'd had. Anyway, we got to about Wednesday night. My thought was, uh, okay, I think this is quieting down. Uh, the U.S. dollar has weakened here about 2%, 2.5% from last week's highs. I've been looking for a chance to get long. So for the first time in a while, I've, I've returned to my long positions in the U.S. dollar index. And um, that's something I've wanted to do for a while. I finally got it on. Uh, initial position, the U.S. dollar starts to do better from here. I'll add to it. Yeah, other one of note, of course, is the drop in crude prices, new six-year low below the March low. And that's really the key is that, uh, you know, it broke to a new low by the end of the week. And, again, that usually signals that lower prices are to come. Uh, yeah, I mean, crude oil, uh, the WTI, has, been, has closed lower for nine weeks in a row. We were $59 at the beginning of July. You know, six weeks later, we're at 41 That's uh, like a 30% fall mm-hmm. in, in six weeks period of time. But here's the thing. Uh, the Canadian dollar made a new low for, like, I think it goes back about mm, 11 years. The first week of August, we're about a half a cent better here the second week. Interesting, we have got the largest speculative short position in the Canadian dollar that we've had in more than a year and a half. The last time we had such a big position, the Canadian dollar actually started the rally. You know, people mm-hmm. got ahead of themselves on the cycle here. Those shorts had to cover in, and the Canadian dollar rallied about six, six cents or so in four months. My point is, Mike, I mean, it's obvious to see crude oil, Canadian dollars, a lot of commodities have been under tremendous selling pressure. It wouldn't surprise me if we had a bit of a bounce, although I am looking for the Canadian dollar, crude oil, and commodities generally to make new lows here before we get uh, to the year, end of the year. But that's a key point is that, you know, a lot of financial considerations within the market, you know, people are always looking for these sort of fundamental reasons. Why did it do this? Why do that? A lot of times it is just positions changing. As you said, you've got this massive uh, group of people speculating that the Canadian dollar is going to go down. Well, if they had just determined for that that's enough of that move, you know, or as you alluded to earlier, you just took yourself out of the market with some profits on the table, that can be the reason for a move. For sure. Um, I mean, just to finish up here, I'm, you know, these are my short-term trading things that I do mm-hmm. on a little on a longer-term basis, like Lance Armstrong. I enjoyed listening to him. Lance That's Roberts. The point. Yeah, Lance Roberts. Sorry, you, I did it too. Uh, the markets swing; they go up, they go down over different periods of time. However, I continue to believe that deleveraging, deflation continues. That means falling commodity prices and a rising U.S. dollar. That's kind of my framework within which I do my short-term trading. I'm with you on that one. Thanks, Victor. Great stuff as always. Okay, Mike. Have a great weekend. My thanks to Victor Adair. My thanks to Lance Roberts. My thanks to Michael Levy and Ozzy Jurek. Remember that Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club uh, is a royalty-based investment, meaning you get paid first. There are no fees associated with it. And uh, keep in mind, it's in the tech business. So for more information, go to soleraclub.com. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Well, this one comes courtesy of my thanks to ABC News. And yes, this is the political gift that just keeps on giving, Hillary Clinton. Now, in case you missed it, well, you remember, they've got the big uh, State, de- State Department destroyed emails uh, kind of 
scandal going on there. And then after the investigation started, she's accused of destroying her own server. But the big issue is that she's sending classified information over a personal email account, which is very treated very seriously in the States or everywhere else, I guess, but has uh, invited further investigation by the FBI. Now, you've also got the reputation background of the Clintons. I'll leave that as it was. I'll remind you of the Clinton Foundation. Bumped into someone this week who had no idea about this. But, uh, you know, taking questionable donations from some countries that are very well known for abusing human rights. But the fact is that they spend the money on other things besides charity. $140 million collected in 2013, only $9 million in direct aid. So that's the backdrop. This is the kind of stuff you literally just cannot make up. And that is, okay, so the State Department is releasing portions of the Hillary Clinton emails. They're doing it in batches. But here's in the latest group, and it was a beauty. It included a request by Hillary Clinton to ask to borrow a book called, in quotes, Send, Why People Email So Badly and How to Do It Better. And that's the name of the book. Uh, Chapter 6 of the book is entitled, and this is the part I saw this, are you kidding me? The email that can land you in jail, end of quote. The chapter includes a section on how to delete something so it stays deleted. I, I mean, I still read that right now and go, you can't make it up. Now, ironically, the authors, or Shipley and Schwab, they warn that deleting emails could actually lead to future legal problems. On page 226, they warn in quotes, if you're issued a subpoena, your deletion binge will only make you look guilty, end of quote. Well, that's exactly, of course, is what's happening in the States. The FBI is investigating the handling of that classified information in Mrs. Clinton's emails while she maintains that she's done nothing illegal or improper. But I just love that. That does not look good that she ordered a book that includes a section on emails that can land you in jail and how to delete something so it stays deleted. Got to love that one. Hey, just a reminder, by the way, go to moneytalks.net. We've got that great black market catalog, including so many things like the cost of bribery throughout the world. I talked the cost of weapons throughout the world. The list is really a big one and fascinating there. Go to moneytalks.net, but you can also, of course, click on the daily business comment. You can re-listen to any part of this show during the week. So if you're traveling, you're busy, you want to rehear something, go ahead. Click on right there. Very easy. You can do it at iTunes, too, in their podcast. And, of course, I do a midweek report. So all of that's available. Go to moneytalks.net. My thanks for listening. I hope you have a terrific weekend.